You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to M Pavilion. Um, just in terms of seating, if you're participating, we'd love just to, I guess, create an intimate environment. So if you're um, happy to, maybe just to move on the stools and we can all kind of come in closer together. Um, my name's Jen, and I'm the program manager here at the Pavilion. Um, and firstly, we'd like to acknowledge the Yellowcoat Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yellowcoat Willem are part of the Boonwurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors, and their elders past, present, and to the future. Tonight, we are delighted to... Tonight we are delighted to invite Ali Bird and this amazing panel um, for real life summer get together. So I'll hand over to Ali. Thank you. Thank you for coming, everybody. Um, I'm, my name is Ali, and I am one half of um, a group called Real Life, and this is Claire. And um, yeah, Claire will just give you a little bit of background about what Real Life is, and then um, we will introduce you to our guests. Okay, this is, this is now working. Um, so, my name's Claire. And we, Ali and I started Real Life as an opportunity for people to come together and collaborate and learn from each other. Um, we wanted to provide a space where we could meet people where you might not normally meet people and create community to cultivate your working and personal lives. Um, so coupled with that, Ali and I are really keen to get people off the internet and off online and um, begin speaking to each other face to face. So hopefully real life will give you an opportunity to get out of the house and speak to people you might not normally um, and connect with each other face to face. Um, Ali, do you want to introduce our panel? I will. Um, so uh, yeah, essentially we have Marg Darcy and Becky Orpen and you may or may not know, but um, Marg is the mother of Becky. Um, and um, we were also uh, inspired to curate a panel that wasn't just listening to our demographic, like our generation. So this is why I was keen to hear sort of Mark's point of view on life as well as Becky's. Um, and I will refer to my notes, Marg, so I make sure I get it correct. But um, Marg has a long experience in the community sector, most recently with establishing programs um, and, and is an NDA. IS Early Childhood Partner in the community in Ipswich, Queensland, ACT and in 2018 New South Wales. Um, Marg has also previously worked in community and public sectors with a focus on women's rights to live safely in the community and health and wellbeing for families and children. Marg was inducted into the Victorian Honour Roll of Women in two, 2003 for her work in family violence. Um, and um, most recently, Marg has managed the establishment of a new service in Canberra with a focus on early childhood intervention for children eligible for NDIS. But also what is not here is, yes, Marg is in politics and establishment, but we'll get to all of that. So, yes, that's just a really brief introduction. Um, and Becky is... Um, an all right legend, no. But also, like, we have, like, um, we were... When we established Real Life, we... Um, we also sort of partnered with some of our friends who we think are pretty um, incredible in the work that they do. And Becky has been really kind in lending her time to real life. And um, yeah, so Becky is a creative practitioner 
um, based in Melbourne. Her work occupies a space between illustration, design and craft. Becky has run a freelance studio for over 20 years. Hard to believe it, looking at her, I know. Catering to a wide range of clients as well as exhibiting her work both locally and internationally. She's authored four DIY books and one children's title. Her work is described as colourful, graphic, bold, feminine and dreamlike. Okay. Everybody feel like we're on track? <laughs> Sorry, it's a, it's a really relaxed, like we want everybody to feel very welcome. Feel free to come over if you are at the bar and would like to have a seat. Um, but yeah, so um, first of all, we're going to um, pass over to Becky to kind of, yeah, drill down into some life of Marg. Becky. <laughs> is this, oh, this is on. Should be on. Oh, yeah. Great. Okay. Um, so it's quite a thing to interview you, your mother. That's a really strange thing. Um, so one of the things that I've always found quite inspiring about not only my mum but, but a lot of people that I meet is, is their story and I'm really interested in people's stories. So can you tell us a little bit about your history, like starting from the beginning? So you were born in rural Victoria. Yes. That and far back. Yeah, that far back. And so your mum and dad... I feel like so my grandma and grandpa, who are now passed on, um, gave you some pretty good, you know, grounding equality values and things like that. So um, can you tell us about that? So about your childhood. Okay. Yeah. That's weird. Um, okay. I guess one of the um, really um, influential parts of my childhood was I grew... When I was two, um, my dad worked for um, the State River Supply um, and he was the payroll officer for the people who were building the Hume Weir. Um, and so we lived in Talangada at the time that they actually drowned it. Um, so when they built the Hume Weir, the, town of, the old town of Talangada was actually drowned. So I grew up from two until I was nine watching houses of my friends and um, other people being put on trucks and carried from the old town of Talangata to what's now the new town of... Well, it's no longer a new town because that was a very long time ago. So what is now the town of Talangata. Um, and um, we, because they were drowning the lower part of Talangata, we moved up to what was called the Turak of Talangata because it was up on the hill. Um, and we, were, we lived in this um, old two-storey house and we were... The only other people around us were farmers because everybody else had moved out of the town. Um, but it was an amazing um, house and I had a room that opened out. So this was when I was three. Opened out onto the roof and we would often climb out onto the roof. And I can remember one particular time we had a huge hailstorm and the whole roof of the house was covered in hailstones. And we were out there throwing them down on the ground from the flat roof outside my window. Um, so I was really lucky to have a childhood that was incredibly free, really. We um, lived in Talangata until I was nine and we then moved to um, a place... I could never quite work out why we were there because there were certainly no rivers at Ogun, which is in the Mallee um, and in the middle of nothing, really. Um, but we were allowed to roam and do what we wanted to do. We could go... Well, my brothers nearly drowned me once in the Hume Weir <laughs> as my parents sat on the bank having a picnic <laughs> going, oh, it looks like that old bathtub they've got out there is sinking. 
and it was, but we got back in. Um, we also had um, an interesting story from that time too. My brothers were the ones who... Um, my dad used to go out and collect um, old um, uh, logs and firewood and bring it back. And we would... The boys, not me, because I was only little, um, would um, have to chop it up and stack it. And one time they'd spent all day chopping up these logs, stacking them, and my parents went down the road to a farm to have dinner... And while they were gone, these two men pulled into our driveway in a ute um, and started stacking up the wood that my brothers had spent all day chopping up. So they were not very happy. So it was in the days when everybody in the country had guns in their house. So the three of us moved out to the front of the house. Me, I think I was four at that stage, had a rifle <laughs> in one hand um, and the two boys had a rifle. I had no idea what you did with it. Um, but um, <laughs> they, the, the men who loaded the truck unloaded it very quickly and drove off. Um, so, yeah, I guess my parents um, had a lot of trust in us and a lot of faith. My, they were always involved in politics. They were both at different stages, members of the Labor Party. Um, my mum very actively, when she got older, was a member of a um, very active campaigner for the Labor Party and for Margaret Ray at Box Hill after we moved to the country. And I guess they, I never experienced a sense. I always had that sense that um, as a young woman, as I was growing up, that they um, would support everything I did, really, whatever it was. Um, that they would support it. I was one of those people... Um, I was quite a troublesome young child. So you did um, run away from home when you I were did. 16 and moved to the city. <laughs> That's Talk right. Talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I did when I was 16 leave home um, and move into um, this strange, strange house <laughs> in um, South Yarra um, that we're sure was haunted at the time. Didn't and you I have no money and have to steal bread and stuff? Yes, yes. It had a bakery just near the front. And because I think I'd, I'd just started working as an office girl at Suzanne's. Um, and so we used to have to... Um, we often didn't have any money. So we would um, just go down to the bakery and help ourselves often. They were quite understanding, really. Okay, so you moved to Melbourne... And then, um, so you left school, you didn't get your HSC. No, I failed. You I failed, failed Form 4. Yeah. Particularly art. Yeah. And so um, you left school, ran to Melbourne, got a shitty job. And then, you said it was <laughs> shitty. And then you met my dad. Is that what happened? I did. I met your dad when I was 17. Um, and um, actually, one of the ways I met him was... In those days, I know this will come as a surprise to you younger women there, women were not allowed to drink in public bars. Um, and um, what, what year would have that been? Uh, like yeah. No, wow. 67. 67. Yeah, okay. Well, so we've come a long way. I'm stage, just going to have a glass of Chardonnay. <laughs> sip, sip of my Chardonnay in <laughs> public. Yeah. It's not yeah. the 60s. Anyway, can keep going, um, so, um, a few of us decided we would go to the railway hotel in Glenferry Road in Malvern. Um, and we did go into the public bar and we did ask for a drink and they did refuse to service and we just hung around for a while until they did service. 
but it was somehow through that process that I met your father. I did not know that, by the way. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you met my dad. Good work. Uh, Got married. Yes, we got... Yet go. We got married because oh. he, is, he was very um, worried about... He, I didn't really want to get married, but he was a bit worried about how his mum would view the fact that we'd lived together and we weren't married. So that's why we got married. Yeah. Uh, yes. And stoned at your wedding? Uh, yes. <laughs> we were not at the wedding, before the wedding. We drove, we drove to the wedding together in a combi van because he had a combi van at that stage. So we drove to the wedding together in a combi van and we stopped uh, along the boulevard. We got married in the Unitarian Church because my parents were Catholic and uh, Ross's parents were God only knows what, really. Uh Um, So we went for the Unitarian Church and so we drove along the boulevard and stopped and had a joint um, on the way to the wedding. I only found that out because mum once said to me, I think technically I didn't need to get divorced because I was stoned at the wedding. And uh-huh. <laughs> yes, exactly. Anyway, good. So you met dad, had us, got divorced. Oh, sorry, How old were you when you had Becky, sorry? Um, uh, so I was 23 when I had okay. Becky. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 23. Cool. Yep. And um, then when I was born, mum and dad spent the first two years of their life driving up and down the coast and living right. in the back of a land cruiser. So I didn't have a house or anything for the first two years of my life. And we actually lived on the beach um, yeah. up in the near the Daintree Forest. Oh, you've got that on there, have no, you? No, Oh, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, up near Cape Tribulation. So for about four months of Becky's life, she hardly wore any clothes because we just camped on the beach and we'd be in and out of the water and, yep, we'd probably be in trouble these days. I know, you would be. We'd be calling yes. you. Yes. <laughs> um, so then came back to Melbourne, decided you didn't want to... You broke up with dad. And then, I was three then. Then, mum decided it would be a great idea if we moved into a commune. I love this. I know. Becky spent time in a commune. So, from the age of about four. Keith, here. Ex-commune. Ex-commune people. Front audience member. We we lived in a commune. Um, Can you describe, I have trouble describing what the commune was. (laughs) I don't know if you'll actually remember what happened <laughs> then, but um, but it wasn't like if you talk about it now. I guess it was like a giant share house. Well, no, but it, it, had, it was no. politically motivated. A it lot had of very it had very rigid rules. Yes, didn't it, Keith? Um, so we called it a non-sexist socialist household. So people paid rent. Well, first of all, we rented it from the Catholic Church. Um, so Irwin... And it was in Kew. In Kew. Yep. So it's next to where the um, Archbishop now lives. Um, and we, my partner then, Irwin, um, who I'd met, was living in a commune next door. And we decided we wanted to set up our own. And he wrote to the Catholic Church and said, I'd like to rent this old place that was part of an old convent from you to share with my family. And so they said Yes. And it so was we a huge house. It was a huge house. Yep. It had been it had been a home for unwed mothers. And that's why we had we had a little toilet thing in there. All that we had six children's toilets in there. Um, because of that. So we um, advertised for people to join us and Keith over here was one of the people who joined us. <laughs> <laughs> and Roe was there too. Roe followed Keith. <laughs> okay. 
visited frequently. Um, and the, we, it wasn't like a shared house because we did have very rigid rules. So everybody was expected to do... There was no um, break-up of roles according to gender. So everybody was expected to do the same sort of work. Everybody had a turn at cooking. Keith was great at lentil patties. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, and it was a, was a really great... And Oh, can I tell him about going overseas? Okay, so at, at, one, at, at one stage, um, Erwin and I decided um, that we wanted to go overseas for a holiday. And so we negotiated with the people who lived in the commune to look after Becky and Emily. So Becky was by that stage at school, I think you were five in prep, um, and Emily was three. So we went overseas for six weeks... Um, and left the children in the commune. <laughs> um, one, of the, one of the other women in the house was a teacher. And she actually... Um, we organised with the Q Primary that Becky could go out of school and she went to school every day with the woman who was a teacher. Um, so it worked out. It worked out great. Great. How to be successful. Leave no, your children with yeah. people. Go overseas. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, so let's get back to your education. So by then you still hadn't gotten to high school. So when did no. you do that? So was in was while I was at the commune. So one of the things that happened along the way was Gough Whitlam got elected, yeah. um, and Gough Whitlam, of course, one of the big things he did was open up university education. So he made it free, um, and so as a I can't remember how old I was, twenty seven year old, I was able to actually. Um, go to university um, and, uh, you know, like experience all of, the, all of the excitement, really, that university life brought with it. Um, and I went to La Trobe and that was a very political um, campus at that stage. So would you say moving into the commune and going to university like, solidified your interest in politics and Ab absolutely. that environment. Absolutely. And also at the same, same time I was volunteering with um, 3CR. So there was a group um, set station. up by ACT. The ACT, you had a working women's program, the women, Working Women's Resource Centre or something it was called, and they funded us to do a radio program on 3CR where we interviewed women who were in non-traditional jobs. I remember one of my best interviews was a tuba player. <laughs> It was great. <laughs> okay, so then, um, um, so then you've gone to university, or with us as children. I remember going to La Trobe University, sleeping oh, in the lecture right. theatres, blah that's blah right. blah blah. Yes. Um, and then you got your first job. I might. You guys can start talking how about questions I'm now. I'm interested. How did you feel um, with all this excitement going on, Becky? With can I, can yeah. I say, Becky, at that one of the really good things about the commune was actually sharing the load yeah. of parenting. Yeah. Becky was a nightmare. A nightmare. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Becky was a very difficult child. I'll give you an example. When she started school, she hated wearing clothes. So every single morning we would have this huge tantrum about putting on her school dress. Huge tantrum. To the point where, and then as soon as she got home from school, she'd walk in the door and start taking off her clothes as she walked in the door. So by the time she got to the middle of the house, she was completely naked, except she did keep her knickers on. Um, 
can so blame the coast life for that. <laughs> um, so we were quite concerned about this and, you know, everybody in the house was aware of Becky throwing the tantrum every morning because she didn't want to get dressed to go to school. And so we decided, I think that three of us would go to parenting lessons. <laughs> we did. <laughs> um, but just having that discussion and talking about it, she actually got out of it. So <laughs> she actually started getting dressed in the morning and going to school without any tantrums. So it was quite an interesting process. The village raising a child. It was the village raising a child, absolutely. And everybody was involved, yeah. Yeah. And so... Sorry. Yeah, and keep and the other thing, um, in those days, what was happening was there was community childcare, but there wasn't a lot of childcare around. So, as Becky said, often what would happen is her and Emily would be dragged along to sit in, to, in through politics lectures at La Trobe, and they were incredibly good about it. And, of course, the other thing we also did was we went to a lot of demonstrations because it was Lord a very Rally. political household. Can I tell you my nightmares as a child yes. were of Malcolm Fraser driving an atom bomb up the road Whoa. to our house. That's what I used to have nightmares about. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, Activism, thanks, Mum. early yeah. activism. All right. But, well, I mean, I just think it's also so impressive. So, I mean, you... Uh, you know, decided to go to university because Gough with Whitlam made it free and then you were going to all these rallies and raising two daughters. But, I mean, what determination is that? Because you could so easily have decided not to do those things. So, and then drag the girls along being so tired. And I think, like, you know, what were your sort of, like, inner motivators for studying? Was it because everybody else decided to go to university as well or you were determined... To kind of like after leaving, you know, and not graduating from high school, you thought like... Well, I think one of the things was in the commune, almost everybody was either studying or had studied. Yeah. So that was obviously an influence. Yeah. Um, but also I think it was a time. It was a time, particularly after Whitman was elected... and kind of even like late 70s. Yeah, sort of even though yeah. by then he'd lost the election, there was sort of a huge amount of activism and a huge amount of hope. You know, like in a huge amount of anything's possible, really. Yeah. Um, and so I think it was that as much as anything yeah. else that yeah. prompted me to go to uni. Yeah. yeah. Did, you, did you have to do any... So now I guess if um, you want to go back to uni and you haven't finished school, you have to do a TAFE bridging course. Did you have to do any... I, I did a one year... You didn't have to, but I did because I wasn't confident enough to just go to uni. And so I did a one year course at Caulfield. Um, which was then a TAFE, now the Monash campus. Yeah. Um, but um, that was, yeah, and I loved, I loved doing that. I loved being at uni. I absolutely, you know, like it was just one of those amazing... And it was one of those times, you know, the women's movement was really taking off. Women's electoral lobby was really active. There was just so much going on that it was just a perfect time, really, to be at university, yeah. Do you want to, like, I, I'm just now want to, like, completely fast forward and just latch on to something that you said, which is, like, that you had this hope and, like, yeah. there was a big collective sort of uniformity of, of hope and change and, you know, you would go to these rallies. And so, I guess fast forward now and, um, you know, you are the, you had the Labor pre-selection for Q and how in this time when we are dealing with, like, you know, we know so much about American politics, but even here in Australia, we have, um, you know, Scott Morrison leading a sort of caretaker government and, you know, we're disappointed with our refugee policies. Like, how would you 
How do we keep hope? Um, I think we keep, I think we keep hope by holding on to the people that we are and the people who are around us. I'm a member of a group called Grandmothers Against Detention of Refugee Children, as is Ro over here. Um, and we um, in Kuyong ha regularly go and stand outside Josh Frydenberg's office. Occasionally they call the police. One week we had 15 grandmothers and seven police. Wow. <laughs> Which was crazy. great. Yeah. Well, one for two, that was yeah. good. <laughs> um, and... Um, but the other thing we do is hand out information um, at Camberwell Market. And I guess what gives hope is the reaction that we get from people, you know, who generally are very positive. And I think it's really interesting because I was actually speaking to a young refugee recently because I was getting rid of furniture from my house and ended up connecting up with this young refugee who'd actually been... He's been in Nauru, so he was from, came from Iran and he was in Nauru for a period of time. The boat he was on, there were 75 people and it was just at the time that Kevin Rudd came in and they reopened Nauru. And of the 75 people on his boat, 70 got sent to Christmas Island. Five of them, including him, got sent to Nauru. So he was on Nauru for a number of years and then in community detention in um, Brisbane. Um, and one of the things I said, I said to him, you know, because he's a, he's a delightful young man, and I said to him, how, are you, you know, how do you feel about Australian people? Given what you've been through, how do you feel about Australian people? And he said to me, I don't confuse the government with the people. Um, and I thought that was really beautiful, and I think that's what, what needs to give us hope. We need not to confuse what our government does, and even... You know, I'm, even though I stood as a candidate for the Labor Party in both Kuyong and in Kew, um, I'm not, I, I'm, I don't approve of the Labor Party's policy on refugees, but I know there are a lot of people, you know, there's a group called Labor for Refugees. I know there's a lot of people out there who feel the same as I do, and that's what gives me hope. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I guess um, something that we're also interested in is your work within the women's um, or women's sector and the family violence sector. So can you tell us a bit about your journey from being in university to working at the Women's Refuge? And then we're particularly interested in um, your work within the poli Victorian police. So, yeah. All right. Um, so when I um, finished my university degree... Um, obviously, I was looking for a job and this job came up as um, a coordinator at a women's refuge. Um, so, I applied for it and it was fascinating because the refuge was run by a feminist collective. So, I got interviewed by 12 women uh -huh. <laughs> um, and who were... And I think I got the job because I'd lived in a communal house. <laughs> so, I knew what it was like. Refuges in those days were one house that you'd have sometimes three or four women and their children all living in together. So it was a real, you know, you'd have women who were incredibly traumatised, children who were incredibly traumatised, all thrown into this um, environment together with, even though I think we did a brilliant job and we were really good workers, um, but we weren't therapists, we weren't counsellors, we were women who were basically coming there because we believed in women's right to live in safety and that's why we were there. Um, so it was a, 
it was a really challenging time for the women and for us as workers. It was in the days when we would... Um, so, um, one of our experiences was we would help women move. So, women would, we would pick women up from railway stations or anywhere that was anonymous where they could get to safely and easily. Um, and um, we would take them back to their houses often to get um, their furniture. So, we were really good furniture removalists. Um, and uh, the police, we'd bring up the police and say, we're going back to this woman's house. Can you help us? You know, we're, we're not sure whether he'll be there or not. Um, can you help us? And sometimes we'd get fantastic police who'd be great and they'd say, yes, come to the police station first. We'll take you in the car. We'll, we'll help you. We'll come in with you. We'll help you. Other times we'd get police who'd just say, no, basically. The scariest one we had was one... Um, uh, we had two police in the car, so they met us at the house. They sat in the car and said, well, you go in and get the stuff and just call us if you need us. As we walked down the driveway, um, a gun came out the window. Um, so we very quickly backed back <laughs> to the police to um, uh, get their help in getting the stuff out. So it was a very challenging time and we weren't we were I was employed for three days a week and we worked basically full time and, and also the, if there was a security break at the refuge right. everyone to came to that. our house we had so, all the people of the refuge used to come and stay at our house we wow. yeah. we'd often get called at yeah. sort of you know three o'clock in the morning to say we've received a bomb threat from or, yeah. somebody discovered the address of where the refuge yeah. was or and this was. is this castle house like the center no, no, against no, no. no. Oh, oh, but the, and this was the refuge where all so the women the, went yeah. and the then subsequent yeah. to that then so you we would go out in the Whoa, middle okay. all the workers would go out in the so middle of the night and pick up the women wow. and yeah. the kids would it would be nothing yeah. for the kids to wake up in the yeah. morning and there'd, there'd be women and kids yeah. sleeping on the lounge room oh floor God. so you were exposed yeah. to all this becky and well, how was yeah, that like was do, that um so if we had we used to take the refugees used to do camps on school holidays for the kids so we used to do all the camps for the refugees which was kind of like we, we found it quite I, I kind of loved it. It was also really intense because you yeah. were dealing with these incredibly traumatised children yeah. who were kind of yeah. often incredibly badly behaved or yeah. just like, yeah. yeah. So and it was how old were you when that was? I was kind of like late primary school, yeah. late primary school, kind of, yeah, mid to late primary Actually, school. Actually, there was an interesting story about your primary school because I went up to the, in my, you know, evangelical mode about everybody's got to learn Which about family Q violence. primary school, by the oh, way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I went up to speak Very to the principal to say, what are you doing about family violence? <laughs> um, and he said, well, we don't need to do anything because this is Q and we don't have family violence in yeah. this area. But it's the very interesting, next the ignorance. week, yeah. I had a phone call to pick up a woman from the um, uh, railway station and when I got to pick her up, it was um, uh, the mother of one of Becky's classmates and, and wow. the classmate and her sister. Um, so I couldn't, of course, go back to the principal and yeah, say, "Hey, guess what?" You? Because it was secure. It was a secure refuge, and of it was course. Yeah. and so private. Like so, for yeah. very yeah. like privacy reasons, so That's you couldn't right. go back and say, "I told so, you so." But like the ignorance was. That's right. One of the interesting things about those days was that we did have a security of address. So not even the department who funded us knew yeah. the address of the house that we had. Yeah. Yeah. We, wow. we actually had allowed one of the ministers to visit once and we blindfolded her yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to drive her to the address. Yeah. 
so, yeah, I guess I was really interested to read that um, it was during the time when they were introducing the stalking legislation yeah. and it kind of yeah, yeah. shocked me that there was no, I guess, parameters around what domestic violence was or what yeah. inappropriate behaviour was at all. So what happened, I only stayed at the Women's Refuge for two years because I just found it really confronting and I was angry the whole time. I was so angry at um, the men who were violent to the women. I was angry at the court system that ignored the violence. I was angry at the um, police who often ignored the violence. Um, so I only stayed there for two years and then I went to work for um, the Department of Community Welfare Services in the program that funded refuges. Um, but then I was on a committee that introduced the Crimes Family Violence Act, um, which is the act that started off being able to get intervention orders. Um, and so the police actually approached me to ask if I would set up the Family Violence Project Office in the police. And the role was to do training and education with the police. Um, and my very first experience after I took that job, I'd been in the job for about two weeks, I think, and somebody rang me up and said, oh, Marg, there's a sergeant's course on at, at, at the academy. Do you want to come out and give them a chat? And I said, fine, I'll do that. <laughs> and I got out there. There were 100 police pe doing their police sergeant's course. One woman, yeah, I was 99 say, men... They, they put me up on a stage, so I started doing my spiel about the Crimes Family Violence Act and why we have it and what the definition of family violence is. You know, it's not just violence. And I just got this barrage of, what, so you're telling us you want us to be social workers? Nah, the way to deal with family violence, you take them out the back and you give them a bit of a biffo. That sorts it out. So that went on. It was just this absolute what I would describe as an assault, really, um, on me. So um, I learned from that experience not to do that um, again on my own. I learned to be careful about how I spoke and um, how I presented and I never went to a sergeant's course without a senior sergeant standing beside me um, and supporting what I was saying. Um, but it wasn't... It was at those very early stages of educating the police. And I guess, you know, that's another thing that gives me hope. When I hear now people like Ken Lay, when he was Commissioner of Police, standing up there and saying, you know, that the community has to take responsibility for family violence, that men need to be held accountable for the violence that they use, um, that women and children have a right to be safe in their own homes... That's a huge, huge turnaround. You know, like it is, it is massive, that, yeah. that change. So that gives me hope yeah. as well. Well, um, and I've just noticed like an immediate, sorry to interrupt, Mark, like an immediate change between the, re like the instant reporting of the murder of Eurydice Dixon where instantly it was like she shouldn't walk home alone and then there was obviously a backlash. Women have the right to feel safe and then unfortunately we've had, and we won't go into that, but another tragic incident. But at least the reporting is very much now supporting. But, you know, even small shifts like that and that is a hope vibe too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, yes, yeah, sorry. So I went from there to working in the um, Attorney General's Department. 
and um, when Jan Wade was the Attorney General, so she was a Liberal Attorney General, but she was great. She was brilliant and she was the one who actually um, introduced the stalking legislation. So even though under the family violence legislation, you know, stalking wasn't necessarily recognised as part of the family violence behaviour, so yeah. Um, and that was quite a breakthrough to get that legislation up. So, can we skip forward a few years? From, yeah. Because that was about 93, around yeah, about, yeah. yeah. Um, so, what made you put your hand up to be the local <laughs> candidate for Q? If we go, would you go into politics, people, and they go, no, never. And I guess... But um, that's maybe not yeah. everybody, obviously. So, obviously, you've got the family history with the Labor Party. But yeah. Um, I guess... Um, one of the things is, well, for a start, Kuyong was an unwinnable seat, is how everybody saw it, and most people saw it. So it's a seat that's been held by the Liberal Party. It was Menzies' old seat, um, Andrew Peacock, um, uh, and um, Josh Frydenberg was the member when I stood um, for Kuyong. Um, and the reality is I, st I stood because... There was a man who had put up his hand to stand who I couldn't stand. I thought he was a misogynist. And <laughs> um, he was actually a very nice man, really. In the end, I got to know him more. Um, but um, he... Um, so then some of the other women in the branch said to me, oh, well, why don't you stand? Um, you know, why don't you put your hand up to be the candidate? So I thought, oh, yeah, well, why not? Especially because <laughs> um, you thought you weren't going to win. That's right. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I stood knowing I had very little chance of winning. I think it was something like a 12% margin that he had at that stage. Um, and so um, it, was, it was an interesting process because um, in the Labor Party to be pre-selected, there's a local... Um, all the local members get to vote um, on who they want as their candidate. So I was standing against this other guy and our local vote was tied... So, he got 43 votes, I got 43 votes. So, then it had to go to what's called the Public Office Selection Committee in the Labor Party. And I wasn't, at that stage, a member of a faction or anything like that. Um, and I got rung up by the left and they said, oh, you're coming to our meeting tonight. I said, oh, am I? <laughs> oh, hasn't anybody told you? <laughs> and then I got rung up by the right and said, we'd like you to come to our meeting tonight. So I had to go and do a presentation to the left and then I had to do a presentation to the right and then you had to do this whole presentation at the Public Office Selection Committee. So out of 100 votes, I think I got 79 votes. The same Congratulations. Hey? Same presentation yeah. to both. Oh, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well done. Same. Yeah. And then, but then even though you knew you wouldn't be, um, you, you had a, you know, very slim chance of winning the seat, you still had to like, once you had oh. pre-selection, you still had to campaign and, and you still had to do and like it was a, a lot really, of... It was a really long campaign. So I got pre-selected in May 15 and the elections were in July 2016. Yeah. So we campaigned over a really long period of time and I must admit I loved it. Oh, I loved yeah. going out, talking yeah. to people 
you know, we did door knocking. You'd meet the most amazing people. You'd meet yeah. the most revolting people. <laughs> but that also, like, I feel like that doesn't surprise me in the sense that, you know, from your upbringing and, yeah. and then from being in the women's refuge mm. and then obviously travelling overseas and placing trust in yeah. even friends, look at the children and then all of that sort of well, stuff. It's just like, and you're huma you are humanitarian in nature and yeah. whether that's come from your mother and grand yeah. like you definitely yeah well i think one of the interesting things is standing as a candidate was really just another part of my political activism you know like i'd all i used to joke when i was in when when i worked in the women's refuge that we were paid to um bring about a feminist revolution because we were <laughs> You know, we, we would talk to the women about feminism. We would go on. We would march down the streets of Melbourne about public housing um, while we were working at the Women's Refuge. And it was the Feminist Collective. And it was, um, you know, so that, that whole thing of... It was just another part of the politics, yeah. if you like. And it just was an opportunity that it gave me to go out and talk to people about the things I felt were important. And, yeah... And then, I mean, soon we will um, open up to audience questions. But before we do that, um, uh, uh, what, like, can you just uh, briefly give us a snapshot of Marg Darcy, um, January 22, 2019? Like, where you're at, what you're working in, um, and 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 um, then we will, yeah, we will we will fill any gaps in, um, yeah, what you'd like to know about Marg. I still want to know more. Um, but can, can, yeah. I, can I just say one of the things that we skipped over, and I do want to mention it because it is also one of the things that just gives me the most enormous hope, is Becky having Tyke and Ari. Um, you know, I was, I was absolutely blown away when Tyke, who's the oldest grandchild, was born. I knew I would like being a grandmother, but it's one of those things that they just get their claws into your heart... And, and it, they don't let go. <laughs> so they oh. now he's like a fifteen year old. Even now asshole. he's fifteen, <laughs> and, and you know you say, "How's your day, Tyke?" And he goes, mm. <laughs> "No, well, he actually yeah. talked to me the other yeah. day." <laughs> no, but that's really beautiful because I think as well, like we like we potentially focus on like one element of our person, and like you forget that you are like a citizen, a mother, a grandmother. You know, you were the Labor candidate for Kuyong and Q. You ran Women's Refuge, so it's just like we are not one label. So I think it's you know I think it's really important for us to all remember that anyway. So. Yes. So to go back to where and I you am. are and you are in the group grandmothers for the detention but and you have grandchildren like I could not be in grandmothers for detention yes, you can, can you I can be a frog can we all friends join? of friends of grandmothers yes so we can all become frogs you can. you've heard it here tonight friends <laughs> yes. of grandmothers against detention of refugee children of refugee children yes anyway um, so where I am today is that um, I actually retired from the last job I had in August this year. I went camping in the Kimberley for a month, um, which was a great thing to do. Um, then I came back and sold the house. So my partner, Erwin, Becky's stepfather, died in, at the end of 2017. So um, I came back and sold the house that we'd been living in for 39 years um, uh, and uh, then stood as the candidate for Q. <laughs> so I haven't really felt like I've retired yet, no. except now the house is sold um, 
And um, now I am actually retiring in Rye. You're a liar because you just told me you were offered a job and you're thinking oh, about yes. it. Oh, yes. <laughs> we knew we'd get the hot inside goss from Becky. <laughs> I have been. I think I've decided to say I'll do it but only two days a week. You're a liar. Oh, you haven't retired. You're about to take a job for two days a week. Thank you for that, Which Becky. Which is a full-time job. Wow. No, I bet. No. I bet. I bet. <laughs> um, Becky, what do you miss? Well, no, one of the things that I really want to do is actually retire properly and write a novel. One of the interesting things about Becky's grandmother is on her 20th birthday, she was working as a tram conductor and she'd been on the late one shift. One of the very first female very, tram Yes, yes, yes. And um, she um, came home from work, went to bed and um, woke up the next morning in hospital because she'd been attacked by a man who had with an axe, who um, smashed her skull several times. She was in hospital for about four months. Um, she had to learn to speak again. Um, he was eventually caught after he attacked <coughs> another young woman. So he just did these random attacks. When they caught him, he confessed to it. And he just, one couple he attacked, picked up a piece of rock that was lying nearby and just hit them on the head. Um, mum, he found the axe outside her bungalow and um, attacked her while she was asleep. <coughs> and, then, and then he um, stabbed a young woman who was um, in her 20s and that was when they caught him. And when they caught him, he said, thank God you've caught me because otherwise I would have killed somebody. And he was um, uh, um, an army guy so he had been overseas and he'd come back and he'd been discharged in the papers it says he was discharged because of his head so i assume that he had um ptsd which of course in those days nobody actually ever identified so what i want to do my mum actually went and got the court transcript of the trial um, so I have the court transcript and I have all her medical records and I, I want to write about her experience but I also want to write about him um, and investigate what it was about him that um, caused him to do what he did um, and then also what happened to him because at the trial he was sentenced to death but he wasn't hung. I had a look at so I want to find out what happened to him. So that's one of the things that I want to do in my retirement. Wow. <laughs> that's a full-time gig as well. Also a full-time job, yes. correct. Yeah. Um, Becky, what are you most proud of? Oh. Your mum, out of the many achievements or projects? And <laughs> you know, oh, that's such a hard... I feel like um, the way we were brought up was quite unique, but it gave me and my sister a really broad view of humanity from a very young age and I think it takes a really brave person to do that and to do all the things that mum did. I don't know, I think one of the, the biggest things that I learned about mum is that she didn't even have a VCE when she had us. Yeah. She didn't even have any of yeah. that. She was so determined that she went yeah. back and dragged us to yeah. the Trobe Union, did all that stuff and then achieved all these incredible things yeah. and that's always been a huge motivator and that it at the core of it, she's just an incredibly great humanitarian and that just has taught me so much. Very beautiful. 
Can I say, can I say yes. what I'm proud of about yes, her? Yes, absolutely. I want to say one of the things that I'm really proud of about her and her sister is that they've both made their own direction in life. You know, they've both taken on... They haven't followed my footsteps. They have... Hated politics. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Rejected. <laughs> Except she used to hand out how to vote cards. Yeah, because I was forced to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that they, you know, Becky, the way she sort of started in her... Um, art design and setting up Princess Tina and her T-shirt business and then, like, it was sort of really forging the way, really, I th the way I see it, that she just went, on, went at it full steam and did what she wanted to do and did it really beautifully. So, and, and had Ty Canari as well, who are also absolutely delightful children, even though he's 15. <laughs> <laughs> Teenagers. Um, okay, we would love um, anyone who has um, a question or some thoughts or something they'd like to share. Um, I can bring you the mic. We have a spare mic in the audience. Uh, yes, Tara. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Um, you talk about some of your hopes in your lifetime amongst your passions for women's rights and everything. But um, I'm just wondering, um, I guess, what your fears are for humanity and, um, and what that experience has been in your lifetime. I guess in terms of fears, my biggest fear is climate change. And the fact that we have a government in Australia and in America, for that matter, that is completely blind to it. Um, that's probably my biggest fear. And when I think about my grandchildren and the world that we're leaving them, um, I feel really worried about that, about what their experience is going to be as they grow older um, and are dealing with the mess that we've created, really. Um, so that would be my biggest fear, yeah. Thank you. Hi, Becky and Mark. So further to what you just said, I've got a mum that's not like you at all. She's become quite hardened in her older age and has actually become quite right-wing, like hor horribly embarrassing to us. And she's kind of one of these people who almost doesn't believe in climate change. And so with your fear and with your experience in campaigning and changing minds like how do you change people's minds how do we get people that are kind of either disbelievers or deniers or just want to put their head in the sand how do we change people's minds so that we can affect a better like try and fix things if possible for your grandchildren and my and our mm -hmm. children I think there are some people who I think we have to accept there are some people whose minds will never change and for the sake of maintaining good family relationships, we go with that. I was just up in Sydney with my other daughter and we went out for dinner with her father-in-law who was saying, but you don't realise what a waste it is because there's so much coal in the ground and we're just wasting it. We're not using it. So, and I just thought, I'm not going to, you know, he's in his late 80s, I'm not going to have that discussion with him. But I think otherwise, in terms of, I actually think that most Australians now are on board in relation to climate change. I just think we have, we're just not served well by our government in relation to that. Um, and I think that's why the current government is so much on... I think climate change is a big part of why the current government is so much on the nose. 
Um, but I think the way that we um, the the way that we do convince people is to talk. We keep talking and we keep talking and we keep talking and we keep talking. That's really the only way that you can do it. Um, that you talk about how it affects you, how it affects your children, how it affects your grandchildren. You ask them to think about that. You ask them to think about the world that they're creating, that they're building um, and what that will mean. Um, I used to always think, you know, how... Malcolm Turnbull loved having photos with his little grandson and I always used to think two things. One is I wonder whether he has those moments where he actually thinks, what am I doing? What sort of world am I leaving for this child? The other thing I used to think was, does he think about the two-year-olds who are in Nauru um, and who don't get a chance to enjoy their childhood and don't get a chance to, you know, play in the park? Should we get you a mic if you... Yeah, absolutely. Australia decided that Malcolm Turnbull is not worth anything. No. Yeah. He got yeah, thrown out in a leadership coup yes. that cost a lot. You're right. Un unf no. Unfortunately, Scott Morrison is probably not a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's an absolute clown. <laughs> yeah, in the scheme of things, yeah. You have, you have the Labour Party, you have the Liberal Party. They're basically more or less the same, no? Oh, um, more or less so the same, Keith no? and um, Mo are... Uh, uh, sorry, who have known Becky since they, she was two, uh, have to leave. Sorry to announce you. But, yeah, no, I think what you were saying before and we were really chatting about the fact that and Marg gave some really good advice, which was we have to separate the people from the government. And so I think that was something that really resonated but with yeah. me tonight. So, well, But in Australia what you have is a couple of clowns, which yes. is Labor yeah. Party and Liberal Party. Well. Yeah. Who entertain the circus. That is Australia. That celebrates Australia on Australia Day. Like, you know, what is wrong with this? Yeah. 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 And I, I, yeah. But Absolutely. I think it's like yeah. interesting to hear views like that are like, and that's the sort of, I guess, some of the perspectives that we have to answer to. This is the truth. No, the this Australia Day yeah. celebration. But we can you know. deal with that. But thank you for your. Well, I can I can guarantee you no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, Labour but Party. Anyway, Liberal it's Party, all got a little crazy. They're the same clowns. Um, do anybody who, else have any questions? Who are the Tate. star performers in this uh, circus that we call Australia? Actually, yeah. thank you very much. Thank you, um, Mark. Yep, thank you. Just a question for you, um, you. Reflecting back on how things have changed, um, if you were your young self. At that moment when you were leaving school, um, but it was 2019, what do you think you would do in today's climate? <laughs> I'd probably stay in school for a start. Um, I, think, I think I would see before me a lot more possibilities, I guess, than were available then. You know, and I, I, again, that's what gives me hope. You know, I see um, young people of today um, do see it, tell me if I'm wrong, um, but do see a bit that the world is 
your oyster to some extent, you know, that, that you're not circumscribed by people's opinions or, or by people putting you in boxes and saying this is what you can do because you're... Um, yeah. So I, I, I think I would see a lot more possibilities open to me. Yeah. <laughs> I just want... Is this working? Yeah? It should be, yeah. Yes. I just want to say that there is a power in everybody, be it man, woman, or whatever, and none of it is to be undermined. And it is there. We just need to use it. And it's there. And the men will respect it and the women will respect it. But it has to be recognised. That's all. And we've got, to, we've got to support each other, whether we're men or women. Thank you, Camille. That was really nice. And I think that is. There is a power in everything. Thank you for coming. Thank you.